God's word is filled with example after example of a choice that is set before the people of God. Think back in Deuteronomy where Moses is laying out for the people of God. Here are the blessings if you obey God. It's life and prosperity and riches and good life. But if you don't obey God, here are the curses. Here's what's going to happen when you choose to disobey the things that he has instructed and commanded you to do. And a choice is presented to the people of God. Life and good or death and evil. And Moses exhorts the people, of course, the obvious thing is to choose life and good. It's the obvious choice. Deuteronomy 30. You can read that. When we look at Moses' successor, Joshua. Towards the end of Joshua's life, he summons the 12 tribes together. He calls them forth in like a holy convocation to give them some final instructions in which they are to renew their covenant to the Lord. And he gathers them and he he tells them they have a choice to make. A choice between serving the Lord, the God of their fathers, or serving the the gods of the Canaanites. He warns them of the curses that will come upon them if they don't serve the Lord. If they persist in their idolatry. And of course the people of God are saying, no, no, of course we will serve God. And, And of course Joshua knows their histories. And he utters that famous line where he says, but as for me and my house, here's the choice we make. We will serve the Lord our God. Again, the choice is obvious. They should serve the Lord. You think of that story in 1 Kings 18, the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Another choice of Baal. Another choice is presented to the people of God. Elijah summons the people. They are on Mount Carmel. And he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God then follow him. You have a choice. It is set before you. And it's obvious, isn't it? God's people should choose God. They should choose to serve God, to follow God. He's the one who delivered them up out of Egypt. He's the one who preserved them in their sojourn through the wilderness. He's the one who brought them into the promised land and faithfulness to his covenant. It's the right choice. But we know it's not that easy, is it? They didn't always make the right choice. We don't always make the right choice. Our sinful and depraved hearts go after our wicked lusts, our wicked desires. We don't always choose God. We've been studying here these these lessons contained in these first nine chapters, the prologue of Proverbs. Lessons from Solomon to his young son. And what, what have we seen but this choice presented over and over again? You either choose wisdom or you're choosing folly. Choose life or choose death. Choose the way of wisdom and righteousness or choose the way of wickedness And evil, these choices are before that young son. Those choices are before us. Two rival paths. Two different ways to live. Two ways competing for the attention and affection of Solomon's young son. And he's teaching his son to make the wise choice. Make the wise choice after all because the answer, it seems obvious enough. He's to choose wisdom. There is life and blessings and all good things. And we come now to this final chapter, this final lesson of instruction to his son that that summarizes all of those things we've looked at in those previous eight chapters. And he and he does it in a story form here. It's going to sum up all that's come before and all that's going to come after in the collections of Proverbs. With this one poem, this life and death conflict that we've seen between wisdom and the forbidden woman is going to come to a head. A choice has to be made. One has to be picked. There's no middle way. There's no third option. And the story is going to unfold as a tale of two invitations. Two rival feasts that are presented to the sun. We have Lady Wisdom extending her invitation And woman folly extending hers. And he's going to have to choose. You and I are going to have to choose as well. 
We're going to read the entirety of chapter 9 here of Proverbs. So open your Bibles, turn to it. You can also see it on screen. Hear the words of the living God. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. These are the words of the Lord. Let me ask you a question, something to think about. What is it that makes a good host? A good hostess. When you think about someone who is a good host, what comes to mind? I mean, we've all received invitations from someone who's invited us to, uh, to their home for a, a party or maybe a special dinner engagement, and they are just excellent hosts. I mean, you get there and you know they've done everything to prepare for your arrival. They think about their guests. Everything they do in preparation for it is with their guests in mind. The house is orderly. And clean, it smells good. They got that little diffuser wafting essential oil mixture, you know, throughout the house. The bathroom is immaculate, right? There's, there's just wonderful appetizers. There's a variety of drinks. They may have even asked you, what is it that you like to drink? And they, they have it for you there. You, you're made to feel welcome and, and it, you're comfortable. The food is just a, just a wonderful spread. It's delicious. It is tasty, right? You, you've got an abundance of food, so you, people like me can go up for seconds and thirds and not feel like, you know, embarrassed about doing that. Desserts are amazing. I mean, but more importantly, you, you feel loved because you were, you were cared for. Someone took you into consideration. They did everything possible to make that event just special and make it about you. But you've also been invited, right, to other parties and other dinners, perhaps, and other homes of folks who lack in the grace of hospitality, just to say it nicely, right? Now, I'll just be blunt. They're terrible hosts, right? You know, <laughs> you get there, the house is filthy, man. It's like they just, they just left the mess as it was. Just come on in. You're one of us, you know. Make yourself at home, but, like, you don't want to touch anything, you know. You go to the bathroom, and it's nasty, we went to dinner at someone's house a while back, and I go to the restroom, I lift the lid, and I was like, dear Lord, this thing hasn't been cleaned since 1985, man. <laughs> you know, you don't feel special in those moments there at all, right? No drinks are offered, no appetizers. In fact, they don't offer you anything. You've got to ask, you know, because they don't, they don't offer it. They're not thinking about you. Dinner is, eh, might have been frozen leftovers or something like that. Dessert, eh, some cheap store-bought thing they thought about at the last moment. But you don't feel special, right? You don't feel loved. And if you were to receive an invitation again for, I, for either, of those, either one of those two hosts, which one would you choose? Right? It's obvious you'd want to go to the one with the excellent host. 
where you feel comfortable and welcome and cared for. Choice is obvious. And this is exactly what Solomon is doing throughout all of these nine chapters in the prologue. Especially here, he is presenting wisdom as the most excellent and wise choice. And chapter 9 is just a brilliant piece of Hebrew poetry here. And Solomon's casting Lady Wisdom as this excellent hostess, throwing a fantastic dinner party, a, a dinner feast, whom everyone should want to attend. It is the party of the century. It is the dinner engagement of the ages, and everyone should want to be there. So we're going to look at these invitations here, because he's going to then look at woman folly's invitation, right? And he's saying that's probably not the one anyone should want to go to. The choice is that obvious, even though not everyone makes the right choice. So we're going to look at ladies, uh, Lady Wisdom's invitation first, and Woman Follies. Then we're going to come back to this middle section, because you might be reading this and go, what on earth does that middle section have to do with these two invitations? Like, it seems disjointed. It's not. It's actually key and instrumental to understanding these two invitations. And more than that, It is essential to understanding all of the Proverbs that come after it as well. All right? I want you to focus on Lady Wisdom's invitation. We're going to spend most of our time there today. And I want you to see in it the parallel to the gospel's call of salvation and call to follow Jesus Christ. We know that the wisdom in Proverbs continually points us to the one who is the sum of all wisdom. Wisdom from God and the wisdom of God. Um, So this is what we're going to see here. Let's look first at wisdom's preparation. We know that Lady Wisdom is not a real figure, right? She is the personification of Solomon's teachings, Solomon's instructions to his sons. Ultimately, we know, as we, we looked at in the last chapter, she's also the personification of God's wisdom, God's commands, God's teachings. And I want you to note in these first couple of verses how wisdom, Lady Wisdom, prepares for the guests that she is inviting. Let's look at these phrases here. We're told that she's built her house. She's built her house. It's not just any old house. It's a large house with all of the necessary accommodation. In fact, it's got seven pillars. No common house would have had seven pillars. The indication, the implication here is that this is a palatial estate that that Lady Wisdom has built. Seven pillars. Seven, again, is a symbolic number that we know in Scripture. It's a number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. Her house has absolutely everything necessary and needful for the entertainment of her guests. She's preparing it. She's industrious. She's skillful. Speaks of the splendor of her house. Her home is like a temple. Those pillars are an allusion to the temple of Solomon. What wisdom has built here is worthy of admiration. She slaughters her beasts. Now, she's preparing a feast here. Not just any old feast, because common people didn't eat meat every day. We can go to a restaurant anytime we want, and we can have meat. Meat was not as common as it is for us today. And in that time, only the wealthiest would be able to slaughter not just a beast. It says here she slaughters her Beasts, plural. She's offering the choices of meats, a variety of meats here for, uh, for her guests here. Right? We could eat a ribeye every day. A common person wouldn't do it. A simple person wouldn't be able to do that. To be invited to a feast was something of great honor. And only the wealthy would be able to do this. So what we can imply here is that wisdom is making a significant investment in feeding her guests out of her own wealth. She wants to make sure they have plenty to eat. There's room for seconds and thirds. And she's not serving junk food. She's not serving reheated leftovers. It is a splendid feast. She has mixed her wine. Now, by saying she's mixed her wine, it doesn't mean she's watered her wine down. Right? Which was a common practice in those days. It makes it a little bit more abundant for everyone. No, she's not watering it down. She's actually adding spices and other things to make it better. To make it more potent. Like they were going to get a good buzz from her wine, right? This is not the box wine from the 7-Eleven, right? This is the, this is the good stuff. 
that she's serving here. She has her guests in mind. She's generous. She's thoughtful. She set her table. The finest china is out. All the little place cards are set. Don't you love going somewhere and they got all these little, little place cards that tell you what everything is, little stickers, little things. That's kind of cool. No details missed. She's diligent in her preparations. Again, Solomon's portraying Lady Wisdom here as this extraordinary woman, the queen of hospitality. It is an honor to be invited to dine at her house. That's how important this is. And everything Solomon has taught his son thus far has presented wisdom in the most excellent of ways. Here she has a table spread before those who seek her and love her. Offering the choices of delicacies to satisfy in every area of life. This is what those first eight chapters have taught us. Go back and read those. And look how Solomon speaks about wisdom and why his son should pursue her and love her and marry her and embrace her and sell everything to obtain her. What she has to offer is the best of the best. And because wisdom points us to Christ, what can we see here? But Christ's own generosity and his own preparation and what he's extended to us in salvation and life through him. Jesus has prepared for us a spiritual feast, right? He spared no expense in offering the best, and the best was himself for those he would invite to dine with him at his table. He thought of everything you and I would need, and he has provided for it in full. He truly satisfies us in every area of life. He is wisdom from God. Let's turn to these Messengers and message of wisdom here. Because everything's ready. Everything's been made ready. It's, been, it's prepared. She's good to go. So what does she do? She sends out her messengers to extend the invitation to everyone. And they're going to go out under wisdom's authority and wisdom's behalf to call from where? From the highest places. The highest places, again, might be the city wall. Right, The, the reach is extensive. She's calling out to everyone. They're calling out to everyone to come to her Feast. This is not the invitation to miss. This is not the Evite to send to your junk mail. This is the one to respond to. You don't want to refuse this one. And it's extended to, listen, whoever is simple and lacks sense. It's whoever. The qualifier here is the simple. The ones who lack sense. And we've been talking about the simple. Sim- the simple are the ones that Proverbs is written to. They are the uncommitted. They are the ignorant, the inexperienced, the immature. Who need instruction. Who need discipline. Who need uh, direction and correction in life. Wisdom calls goes out to them. And they're invited to come dine with wisdom. To the simple, she says, to turn in here. Where is here? They're to turn into wisdom's house, to go through wisdom's door. Now, another word for turn, we know, is what? To turn is to repent. She's calling them to repentance here, to turn from their simple ways and to turn to wisdom ways. And when they do that, they will live and walk in the way of insight. Now, these young women, unlike the forbidden women, are inviting these young men To come to their house, but not to take them to bed for illicit sex, but to wisdom's school. See, these simple young men, again, this is addressed to his son, right? Turn to wisdom. If they commit to wisdom, they'll no longer be ignorant or spiritually blind. Their eyes will be open and they'll enjoy all of the blessings of wisdom. This is exactly what the gospel call is like, brothers and sisters. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come to Christ, to feast with Him, to dine at His table. And when you do that, you'll have life, eternal life and satisfaction. Look how Isaiah expresses this, uh, the compassion of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord, and what He extends to His people. The 55th chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. Come. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
Come buy and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is wisdom's invitation. This is the Lord's invitation to us. Here's what he offers to us. A feast fit for for kings and queens. Delighting in rich food from his table that fully satisfies us. Not partially, not temporarily, but eternally. Jesus tells a parable regarding those who are invited to a great banquet in Luke chapter 14. I want us to, to take a moment to read. It's a lengthy passage, but I want you to see the parallels with what we are, we're looking at here in chapter 9. And here's what Jesus writes, says, uh, says to the crowd there that gathers. Luke 14, 16 to 24. But he said to him, a man who once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come. Same message, right? Come, for everything is now ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Listen to those parallels there. It's a large house that's been made ready for a great feast, a great banquet. There's many rooms to fill. It's a palatial estate. It can fit a whole lot of people. Everything's been made ready. And now the messenger is sent out to go out and call those who've been invited to the feast. They have to make a decision, don't they? Whether they're going to attend or not. And sadly, so many make excuses here. They have no clue to what they're being invited to and now rejecting and refusing. That's the way it is with the gospel call, isn't it? The gospel call goes out, the general call goes out, and what do people do? They make excuses. Why they can't follow Jesus now, or they won't follow Jesus now, or why this isn't a good time in my life right now to do it. Excuses. Rejecting an invitation this great feast that has been prepared from before the foundation of the world. What a sobering thing to realize that so many are called, but few are chosen, as Jesus himself said. This invitation goes out, and we're not to reject it. Like the call of wisdom, right? When it comes, we must receive it and turn to Christ. And when you turn to Christ, you'll have what wisdom promises, life, eternal life life but here's the other aspect of it the gospel call must go out messengers have to be sent and who are the messengers we are absolutely right we are we are sent out into the world to invite as many people to come and be invited as they're invited to our lord's feast that's the gospel call come and feast for our master has prepared a banquet for you it's interesting how verse 3 is grammatically structured when it talks about these young women going out uh, to, to the highest points of the city to make this call. Uh, because even though it's the young women sent out and making the call, the way it's phrased grammatically, it's actually Lady Wisdom making the call. It's as if she is the one speaking, not the young women. And it's a great picture of what we're doing when we preach and proclaim the good news. Yes, it's us speaking, but who is speaking through us? Whose authority are we speaking under, if not the Lord's? It's the word of the Lord that is going out. When we're declaring the gospel, people are hearing the word of God as if it's coming from God himself. Have you ever contemplated that, how profound that is? 
This is how Paul expresses an aspect of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Yeah, it was Paul and his team preaching the word, but it wasn't just the words of men, because what were they preaching? The word of God, and, and they were smart enough to receive it as it really was, the word of God. When I'm preaching God's word, not my opinion, but preaching God's word, I don't like to preach my opinion. My opinion is worthless. It's meaningless. It does nothing. When you preach God's word, you're to receive it as what it is. God's word. You're hearing as it is directly from God. That affects our hearing and how we should receive it. That affects on how we convey it and communicate it as well. It's confident that we get when we do that. It's not my words. My words can't transform anyone's life. But God's words can change them. The gospel call is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We get to call people to the greatest feast ever imagined. A great feast prepared for everyone who will come to Christ. Will you be one of his messengers, brothers and sisters? Will you be one of his messengers? Certainly do not be the one making excuse for why you're not coming to his banquet. Why you're rejecting the gospel call. Let's briefly take a look now at Woman Folly's invitation. I want, there's a lot of similarities between the two, but some very important distinctions there. Woman Folly is the first time she's referred to this way here, is the power behind the forbidden woman that we've been looking at all through these previous chapters. She is the counterfeit here to Lady Wisdom. And now she also is preparing a feast, but hers is a feast for fools here. So look at her preparation really isn't any preparation to talk about. She, she has a house. We know that because she's standing at the door of her house. But we're not told anything about what her house is like. I mean, in contrast here to the industry and activity of Lady Wisdom, who built a house, prepares a feast, sends out her maid servants to call out the guests, woman folly here pompously sits at the door of her house. She's lazy. She's not preparing a feast with her guests in mind. She's not going out of her way. There's no meats to speak of. There's no wine being decanted. There's no table set. She's making zero investment to attract her senseless guests. Why would anyone choose her? She's doing nothing for her guests. There's nothing appealing stated here in terms of her preparation to receive those she is inviting. But here's what we are told about her. She's loud. Oh, we've seen that already with the forbidden woman. And it's not just her volume, right? It speaks of her brashness, her brazenness. Right? She's the way she speaks. Being persuasive by bullying the simple with her words to get them to turn into her house. She's seductive. Again, enticing words. Drawing the simple in. The forbidden woman, what did she have? She had honey lips, right? Bright red lipstick. Honey lips, smooth words came out of her mouth to seduce the simple. And this is interesting. It says here she knows nothing. Now, this isn't about, you know, this isn't about, you know, mental knowledge here that's being spoken of here. Uh, this is a moral and spiritual statement being made. She is totally gullible. She lacks any will or resolve to leave her ignorant ways or her foolish ways. She has no fear of the Lord. She does not do what is right. And in this last portion here of what we're looking at in terms of, of uh, woman folly's invitation, we have an inclusio. It, this is a literary form that we've already looked at previously uh, in Proverbs, and that is where two terms are used to kind of bookend uh, several lines of the poetry here, and everything in the middle of those two terms either defines, supports, or expands upon those two terms. So look at the two terms you have here in chapter 9. First you have, in verse 13, the woman follies loud, seductive, 
and she knows nothing. Now, what is said about the simple who turn into her house in verse, verse 18? But he does not know that the dead are there. She knows nothing. And he knows nothing as well, right? A point is being made here about this loud, seductive, know-nothing that frankly describes our culture today in so many ways. What Solomon is stating here is that it's a no-brainer which feast his son should attend. I mean, it doesn't require a lot of thought here whose house he obviously should go to. Sad reality is that there are many who choose the wrong house to party in, right? They choose folly's feast instead of wisdom's. Look at her message. She's also inviting people to her house, isn't she? She's not sending out messengers, though. She's extending the invitation herself. Lady Wisdom sent out messengers to the highest places, and now it says here that she takes her seat in the highest places. What's that all about? Well, this word in in the original language here of Hebrew means literally she takes her throne at the highest places. She enthrones herself. She takes for herself a position of influence and authority. She is pretentious. She is usurping authority, assuming false authority here, presuming to act like the ruler of a city. Sitting was a position of of authority. When a teacher would enter a room and took his seat, he was taking a position of authority to instruct, and that's what she's presuming to do here. She's going to instruct. She's going to teach. She's going to tell people how they should live, and her life is a mess. Have you ever known people like that? They want to give you counsel, but... They're terrible at taking their own counsel, you know, and you look at their life and it's a disordered mess and they want to tell you how to order your life. And it's like, no, this is woman folly here uh, in what's presented here. Whereas women's wisdom's messengers come with a higher authority, folly listens to her own usurped authority. Now, who is she calling in here? Says here she calls in, look, those who pass by. Those who are going straight on their way. That's interesting here. Those going straight on their way means that these are people who are not intending to turn into Folly's house. They were going on their merry way with no intention of accepting her invitation. So she has to distract them to turn to that. She has to get their attention. They were on the straight path. She uses seductive words to persuade them off the straight path to lure them into her fatal feast. It's one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, you and I have to be on guard and alert all of the times in our spiritual life. Not only is there folly that is calling us, our own sinful desires call us, we have an enemy that is calling out to us to deviate from the straight path, to go off of the way of wisdom, A tireless enemy who wants to trip us up to come off of wisdom's path. There's all sorts of false teaching that abounds out there. That if we're not careful, we could be seduced and enticed away from the true gospel. Here's the reality. Folly's call to the simple sounds exactly like wisdom's call. Notice the words are the same. There's there's no difference in the words. It's the same words. The same words to the simple here to turn In here. And the simple, because of their ignorance and their immaturity, give equal weight to wisdom and folly. Because the call sounds the same to them. They can't discern the difference. Why is it that you and I need to discern? And how do we discern? We need God's word. To know truth from error. To discern truth from error. Without it... That's what we are. We are the simple, and we can't make the distinction here. That's why false teachers attract so many gullible Christians. Why? Because they're talking about Jesus. There's a mixture of truth in some of the things that they're saying. And the gullible and the ignorant, those who don't know God's word, cannot discern. And they're like, oh, that, well, he said Jesus. He's saying some things I know about Jesus. He's using spiritual language. She's using spiritual language. And they're led astray. It's a different message. Look how the writer of Hebrews rebukes his readers. Because at this point in their spiritual walk, they should have been mature. 
They, they should have had the kind of knowledge to be able to discern rightly truth from error. They should have grown in wisdom and knowledge of God's word. Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. Uh, but we're just going to read a portion of this. Um, I think I, well, I have the wrong, wrong. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I think I have the wrong text in my notes here. So let's just go there. I don't think you have the right one up there possibly either. Let me hear some Bible pages turn. (laughs) Oh, how are you going to discern truth from error? Right? It says in verse 14 of of, of chapter 5, But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's the solid food? It's sound doctrine. It's God's word. You go up there. He says, listen, in verse 11, I have, I have a lot of things I want to say to you. A lot of things I want to teach you. There's other, there's other truths I want to be able to declare to you that are hard to explain, but you become dull of hearing. And he says, For by this time, you ought to have been mature. You should have been teachers of God's word, but now you need someone to come back and give you baby food again. Feed you spiritual milk in a little baby bottle. No, no, no. Wisdom calls us to maturity. Everything we see in Proverbs is about to grow in wisdom, to grow in the knowledge of God's word so we can discern truth from error. So when woman folly comes with her enticing and seductive words, we know what they are, we know they're a lie, and we can reject them and stay on wisdom's path. Again, like Lady Wisdom, she calls them to turn into her house for her feast. It's also a call to repentance, but it's an anti-gospel. It's not the true gospel. It's a counterfeit. Her message is turn from the straight path and, and to turn into her path with these false promises that what she has to offer, the food she's presenting to them, can actually satisfy them. That there's life in it, and, and it, there isn't. There isn't. It's seductive words that appeal to their flesh and their lustful desires. It's a crude invitation, but it's enough to lure in her prey. Look at what what she offers here. Lady wisdom offers just bread and wine and the choices of foods. And here she talks about stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. What a contrast between Lady Wisdom's feast here, right? She's got bread and water. I don't even know if she's got butter for that bread. (laughs) Bread and water. That's a far cry from from Lady Wisdom. Like, that's like prison food. Bread and water. What's she talking about here? But here is her enticement. To drink and taste from what is forbidden. From what is censored. To partake of what is secret and hidden. Now, stolen water, you you need to know by now, right, represents something. She's not really just talking about water here, H2O. We looked at this back in chapter 5. Water is euphemism here for sexual pleasure. That's what it is here. Chapter 5, Solomon was instructing his young married son to do what? Drink water from his own cistern, right? To only find sexual pleasure and take sexual pleasure in his own wife. Not to pursue the forbidden women. Not to follow in the ways uh, of, of her adultery here. But to be satisfied with his wife only. And here, woman folly is enticing the simple to partake in what she has stolen from her own husband. From what rightfully belonged to him and him alone. And she's offering it to the simple doofus here who turns into her house. The feast she's offering here is a feast of sensual and carnal pleasures that are maybe pleasant for a moment, but cannot provide any lasting satisfaction. To drink from her well is to drink from a poisoned well. She entices the gullible here to secret sin, right? To what's hidden here. Eat this bread in secret. It seems pleasant at the moment, right? Let's eat this bread together. Enjoying this, 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 this. This fling, this affair. Look what Proverbs twenty seventeen has to say. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. Right? Obtained through thievery in a, in a deceptive way. But afterwards, 
His mouth will be full of gravel. Our secret sins seem pleasant at the moment, but inevitably will leave us feeling like we're chewing on rocks. There is no lasting pleasure. There is no lasting satisfaction. Furthermore, there is nothing secret about our secret sins. We think they're secret. It's the only thing, only we know we're doing this. No one else knows. Only the two of us know. But who are your sins not secret from? The Lord. No secret sins, right? They're all exposed before His penetrating gaze. So what are we to do but to repent and turn to Christ and not feast in Folly's house here because there's no life. There's no lasting pleasure. There's no lasting satisfaction. Folly's feast, we're told here, is a fatal one. Because the gullible doesn't know what they're in for here. They're actually dining with the dead. That would be a surprise, wouldn't it? You go to someone's house and at the table are a bunch of corpses. People have been dead long ago. People who've dined at her table. That's who he's dining with. He doesn't know it. The fool doesn't consider the consequences of his actions before he takes them. The simple turn in to Folly's house. They will die. It is a grim picture that Solomon is painting for his son because woman folly is the grim reaper. Everyone who enters into her house ends up in the same destination. The depths of Sheol, hell itself. Now, these two invitations are extended to everyone, right? Whoever is simple. There's only two choices. You have to pick one. There's no third option. There's no middle way to walk through here. Wisdom and folly host all of humanity. That's it. Wisdom or folly. Both of them are preparing for you to enter their house. Both of them are calling to you to turn into them and feast and dine at their table. Both are zealous for your attention and affection. And you have to determine whose invitation you will accept. But here's the thing you need to understand. To not make a decision is to make a decision. Because all of humanity already has a default RSVP with folly and death. The simpler call to both, but by not making a choice, they've already determined to attend folly's feast. If you don't choose wisdom, you've already chosen folly. You're dining with death unless you turn from your simple ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Now, this middle section of this poem is going to provide quickly here the application and conclusion to these two invitations. And what's written here is everything we need to know on how to read the rest of Proverbs. It's, it's that important. And here it's simple. Here's the lesson. Verse 7. Don't correct a scoffer. Don't reprove a wicked man. Don't reprove a scoffer because when you do, you're going to get abuse. They're going to injure you. And in the end, they're just going to hate you. Now, who is the scoffer? We've mentioned the scoffer before. We saw that back chapter 1. The scoffer is not the simple person. It's certainly not the wise person. The scoffer is the unteachable person. The untrainable. The uncorrectable fool. They do not listen to wisdom. They do not listen to wise counsel. These are people who've already made up their mind and no one can tell them anything different. They're arrogant. So what's Solomon telling his son here? Don't waste your time correcting a fool. Don't waste your time trying to provide counsel and instruction to someone who hates it. Furthermore, if you do it, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get abused. You're going to end up humiliated. But in contrast to the scoffer, you can reprove a wise man. You can give instruction to a wise man. You can teach a righteous man. Why? Because when they're reproved, when they're corrected, when they're instructed, they actually grow wiser. They increase in learning and they will love you. Why? Well, a wise man is humble enough to know that they need to continually grow in wisdom. That they will always need instruction and they know they will need correction. What is wisdom if not the discernment to know whom to correct and who not to correct? 
And how will you know the difference that this person can be corrected and this one can't? Well, the way you're going to know, according to what we see here, is by how the correction will be received. This is what wisdom tells us. The scoffer, he's going to punish you if you try to correct him. He's going to be angry with you. He's going to hate you. And you know people like this. This is not a surprise to us. There's a lot of those kind of peoples in churches today. Nobody here. I'm not talking about you. But I've encountered these kind of folks, right? They don't like to be corrected. They're not teachable. If you try to correct them, if you try to confront them on something sinful or their behavior, their actions, man, they will trash talk you. They will get in your face. They'll get mad. Usually they leave, which is okay with me. That's, that's, that's not the wise person here. You've encountered that with people. You've tried to correct them. You're trying to give them sound counsel. You're trying to impart wisdom to them, and they don't want to hear it. They already know it. They already know everything. And here's a point of self-analysis for you. If you're the kind of person that cannot accept correction, if you're not teachable, like if someone comes to you and tries to tell you something, you're like, Look, I, you have to tell me, I already know. Furthermore, who are you to try to correct me? Who are you to try to tell me what I'm doing right or wrong? If you're that person, you're the scoffer right here. You're the scoffer right here. If you get angry at the person who tries to correct you, you're a scoffer. Teachability, from what we can see in Proverbs, is a mark of the wise person, not the scoffer, not the fool. Right? So this ability to accept correction, to be teachable, that's wisdom. That's the mark of the wise person. So think about this for yourself. How do you take correction? Can you be corrected? When someone comes to you and and, and offers you a a word of correction, how do you respond to it? Do you well up with anger? Is is your first, you know, defensive posture here is to just get ticked off at that person because they're correcting you about something in your life? How do you respond to confrontation. See, the humble person accepts correction because they understand that they're not perfect. They've got a long way to go. They need correction. They need instruction. And they'll love the person who has the courage to confront them. We need more of that, not less. It's, it's, it's not a healthy church where people cannot correct other brothers and sisters. Lovingly correct them. Not jerkishly. Lovingly, right? How do you respond to confrontation? Wisdom is the ability to hear and respond correctly to criticism so you don't repeat the same mistake. Only the fool keeps doing that. Only the fool is going to keep banging their head because they won't respond to discipline and correction. But the wise and humble person will listen to what they're confronted with to try to see the truth in it. It's important. If you can't accept rebuke and correction, it's not because of your personality. It's not because of your Enneagram type. It's because of your sin and idolatry. And you need to recognize that. This is a big deal. If you're unteachable, you're a fool. That's not Dan saying it. That's God's Word saying it. If you can't be corrected because uh, you fire, you're red hot with anger... You're a scoffer and you're a fool. And you need to repent. It's important. None of us like to be corrected. Let me just lay that out there, right? It's not pleasant, is it? You think you're doing good and then someone's like, dude, you're a real jerk in this, you know? (laughs) What you did was offensive or, you know, you said this and, you know, um, I took it this way or or you, you did this and that's sinful behavior, Right? Uh, We don't like that, right? That rubs us a certain way initially. But if the Spirit of God is in us, brothers and sisters, and if He's working in our heart to sanctify us, then when we are corrected, when we're disciplined, when when there's a moment where someone confronts us with something, we're to to take that and, and actually be thankful and have gratitude of heart that someone loves you enough, number one, to do that, and that God is using that to discipline you and shape you for godliness. That's the right, that's the posture of the wise person. And that's what we need to have. See, here's why this is the key. Because the rest of the collections of Proverbs here are going to present to us wisdom from various aspects of life. 
And how are you going to receive those? How are you going to take them in? Will you be teachable? Or are you going to be a scoffer? Will you receive the correction that these Proverbs are going to toss at us? And some of them are hard. Some of, us just smack, some of them just smack us around a little bit there. Will you allow God's word to confront you, instruct you, rebuke you where necessary? The wise person will receive it. The wise person understands these are the two paths, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. The wise person understands that how I respond to instruction and discipline and correction and teaching here will determine whose invitation I've accepted. Verse 10 here is this, the literary center of this poem. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. We already know that this is the theme, right? This is the purpose statement of Proverbs. Back in chapter 1-7, we saw that there. It's the starting point. It's the foundation of getting wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Do you live in awe of God? Do you tremble at his, under His power and might and His majesty and glory? Are you in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the foundation of wisdom. Without that, you cannot know wisdom at all. This is the last time we see wisdom personified and speaking this way in Proverbs. And here, what do we find her but, but just urging us to come to her feast to choose wisdom. And when we choose her, we choose life. It's the obvious choice, isn't it? And how you live will reveal if you've accepted her invitation. If you're wise, you're going to continue to grow in wisdom. If you're a fool and a scoffer, then what we see here is that you're going to stand alone. One day you will stand alone to give account of your life before the Holy One that is spoken of here. I leave you here with the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters. The lavish grace of God extended to us in Christ has opened for us a radically different future here. The path of wisdom. His grace enables us to make the wise choice to choose wisdom and to do it joyfully, not begrudgingly. In Christ, brothers and sisters, you and I are addressed as sons and daughters. He's not addressing us as fools. He's not addressing us as losers or rejects. We are sons and daughters because of our faith in Jesus Christ. What Christ has done for us in preparing this glorious and, and, and lavish feast that you and I get to dine at. We don't have to choose the way of folly. We have Christ. We have all that we need in Him. He is the wisdom of God.